All right, this is a, another edition of More Score. Thanks for tuning in, and uh, we, we're super excited about our guest uh, for for this episode of More Score. Um, we obviously, if you haven't seen Queen's Gambit, I don't know what you've been doing because it was by far the hottest show. Uh, was that mid-pandemic? Yeah. Yeah, it was, yeah. was mid-pandemic, and, and what a show, and the music is unbelievable. Carlos, I know that uh, you have some hardware coming your way uh as we get toward the end of the year i think um but carlos rafael rivera is uh joining us today and um carlos first off thanks for taking the time to talk with us uh we know that um you are, where are you right now are you in florida in miami yeah miami so my you're in miami you're a rare Florida composer. I don't think we've ever talked to a composer that lives in Florida. Do you kind of run people though who live in Miami identify as being from Miami? Because <laughs> Florida, <laughs> yeah, there's a Florida man. I, like all I was thinking about when you said that was Florida man, and right, that's like up in you know Florida anywhere or up north or yeah. Well, Miami is its own country because it's sort of so Latino. You know, we have. So many people that come from so many pa different places from Latin America, and um, so it's, it's it's sort of designated as its own sort of stories in the news, apart from Florida men or people, I guess you know. But uh, I like Florida. I mean, I, it's great. I grew up here, and I lived in LA for a long time, and I think that's why I'm, I'm, I've been lucky enough to get to do some work that's led me to talk to you guys today. Do you feel like you're uh, a fish out of water living in that part of the country in this type of business? Because we find that everyone kind of either lives in New York or primarily L.A. Um, to to be around what this business is, which is, you know, centered right here in Hollywood. Yeah, I think um, I don't I don't feel that way only because the, the way I got in was already living here. And but the relationship had started like ten years before that, or eight years before that, um, with Scott Frank, the director, who I was his guitar teacher in when I lived in L.A. And moving over here, um, we already had a, like an eight-year relationship before I moved to Miami. And two years into it is when he he directed a, a film called The Walk Among the Tombstones, and I emailed him saying. There's a longer story that goes – we can get into it or, or it depends on how bored you get. But, uh, but the <laughs> short one is, uh, is that I had emailed him saying, hey, listen, I read that you know, you're directing a film with Liam Neeson and there's no way I'm not going to be involved even if I write the temporary music and then it gets replaced by a professional. And uh, that's how I got the break. Wow. So you kind of opened a little of that door yourself. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, hey, I'd really yeah. like to do this. Obviously, yeah, and, he believed in you enough. Yeah. That's the thing. It was sort of like we had – I was a guitar teacher for like five years before he, he directed his first film. And James Newton Howard scored that. And I when, when I found out he was going to do it, I was like, okay, I'm going to help you to learn how to talk to a composer. I'm going to just – we're going to do this. All, like I was just so – like, you know, when somebody goes out on a date with somebody – and you're vicariously living the day through them. You're like, dude, okay, so then what? You know, like I felt like that was the the role I was going to be was sort of like, just because I'm such a fan of this stuff. Um, and and so he went off and made the movie and came back, you know, like a year year and a half later, we resumed lessons. And by that time, I had been mentoring with Randy Newman. I had been, you know, I was at USC and, and doing these things, but I was more on the classical side. And he said, Carlos, we've been doing this for a long time, and and you've never asked me to 
you know, to, to give you a, a chance or hook you up. And I was like, yeah, no, I know. He goes like, why is that? And I go, well, it's because I'm in your life. I'm your guitar teacher. And I don't like it like anybody wouldn't like, you know, it's just like, you know who you are. And then suddenly like, hey, buddy, I have a screenplay I wrote. Do you want to you know what I mean? That kind of pushing on your, your profession onto someone. And I've always respected the sort of the pecking order of things and how, how things place. And he said, uh, well, I got this thing I'm working on. Maybe you want to give it a shot. You're not going to score it. But maybe you can help me write it, you know, not writing, but it's helped me by writing music to what I'm writing and maybe I can write more. And that started with a movie that then never saw the light of day for him. It was a it was the first Planet of the Apes he was working on. And he I, I don't know what, what his role was going to be, but he was definitely writing it. So I was helping him in the writing process. And then that project went away. So for me, it was like this awesome thing that I was writing music. And that's where our relationship truly started. And that's why I think he answered the email when I wrote him, you know, in 2012 about A Walk Among the Tombstones. Because, you know, he goes, well, here's a screenplay, write some stuff. And I started writing immediately. And he started showing that to the producers. And that's sort of what led to the opportunity. And plus, I was cheap. <laughs> yeah, I well, I guess lot. that always helps, too. Yeah. Did yeah. you find yourself? Oh, go ahead, Matt. Well, I, I wanted to just, you're talking a little bit about your backstory. I'm really mm -hmm. interested in how you got to where you are. And I want to talk about Queen's Gambit, of course. It's basically the most successful Netflix series of all time, which is an amazing place to be and uh, such a cool That's thing great. to be. So I want to ask you about kind of living through that as that is just totally blowing up. But take me back kind of through your path as a, a young musician getting into this. I know, I think for a while... Uh, and maybe you still are involved with the University of Miami um, yeah. with their music program. And um, right. so take me through a little bit about your kind of musical path from being maybe a, a, a music student at some point. Yeah, I mean, I started, you know, I, I started lessons when I was a kid. I, I took piano lessons when I was like, uh, like in, in um, I was like in first grade or so in, in Guatemala. I took piano lessons for like a year, but we moved a lot. And part of moving is like you start with a teacher and then you move on. So I had piano lessons for like one year and I learned the basics, you know what I mean? And then and then it became um, uh, I moved to Panama and I started guitar lessons when I was like 11. All along that time, I was a fan of music thinking it was only going to be, you know, kind of just somebody who lived in Central America who loved music and I loved films and I loved E.T. when it came out and I cried when you know the bike took off that moment that magical moment that everybody has literally I, I the tears jumped out of my eyeballs literally like when that moment happened and this only happened another time when I saw a movie called Cinema Paradiso and um, towards the end obviously the ending sequence those are the two moments where I've had no physical control of what happened I've been manipulated so well to that moment, you know, that was one of the most incredible things and experiences I've had. And it was through my feeling it was music. And I didn't realize at the time or, or and I'm so only realizing it now that what we love so much about film scores is how it plays a role as part of a whole and the whole experience we have. You know, it's because of the cinematography, because of the story, because of the acting, be when that music you plays, we're completely in. You know, so it makes it it kind of meshes that moment for our for the rest of our lives. And but I was not thinking I would ever be involved in it. I never thought I'd be moving back to the United States. And when I came to the United States, I um, I ended up, uh, you know, just taking guitar lessons as a 14 year old kid. 
and I played a lot on my own at home and I and I listened to music and I'm getting bored with this story and it's like mine. What what what, well, okay, what type of music so, were you listening to at 14? Well, the thing what I'm getting at I guess is that I was when I moved here and because I'd moved so much I was used to the fact that when we moved, there's sort of an acclimation period. There's like when you're new in school, you got to take it takes a couple of months to make your friends. And I always showed up like in January 20th, like after the second semester started, I was like oh. that guy. Hey, kids, here's Carlos, you know, and I had braces, you know, whatever. And um, and that was sort of like. You know, I got used to it by the time I moved here. So when I moved here, I was like, okay, I had fallen in love with playing guitar. And what I was listening to, man, was like 80s, was like early, was like the post uh, Ozzy Osbourne Black Sabbath, like with Ronnie James Dio when he was there for a little bit. I was into Ozzy Osbourne because my brother was into Ozzy Osbourne. And so I fall, fell in love with all of that music that became the 80s metal music. And there was a guitarist called Randy Rhodes who was with Ozzy Osbourne. And so I learned a piece of music called uh, Revelation Mother Earth. Um, and it was uh, the next to last cr track on his first album called Blizzard of Oz. And I learned it as a goal. And I was like, you know, 13 or 12. I was like, the day I can play that on guitar, I'm going to be awesome. You know, that was sort of like the thought I had. And, uh, and all of a sudden the day came when I was already in Miami those first few months. Just all I did was spend all day playing guitar. And listening to the recording, and back then was a vinyl time because I'm 50 now. So back then it was like move the needle on the record back and then play it again, and I would record it with my cassette player. And so I would actually record myself playing with the song and then study it and then play and study and then play and study until that fateful day came where I, where I nailed it. Like I nailed it, every single note of that tune. And I was like, I think I was about, you know, 15 or something, somewhere in that neighborhood. And... And then I had this weird feeling that came over me is that I didn't write it. Like it wasn't, like I didn't, re it's not, it's mine, but it's not, you know? And so I had already fallen in love with that and I started kind of messing around and that's when writing started. Like composition started, you know, but it, it was more like, go ahead, go ahead. Well, how, I, my, I'm curious how that led you eventually to being kind of a, an apprentice with the great Randy Newman. Yeah, well, the the thing was that it became like more like songwriting and joining a band. When we were in Costa Rica, my you know before we moved to Miami, my brother was in a band. He's four years older than me, so he was like a cool sixteen or seventeen. I was like twelve, you know, whatever. And um, and that what I did the, this thing with my hands is because I wasn't really desired to be in the garage while they were practicing. I was a young kid brother, you know, hanging out, but I was like watching them. And I really kind of, once I started getting good at it and we moved to Miami, my brother and I started a band. So he was a bass player and we started writing all these tunes together. And so I Is started metal? developing that way. We were playing, no, we were like, we were like Rush fans. By the time I was doing, <laughs> like playing in bands, I played like everything from Rush, man. Like I could play everything from Hemispheres, top down, like every single, like some, all, most of their albums I knew. We were such fans of what was called progressive rock at the time, you know, and then I went to see Rush live. And OK, to fast forward to Randy Newman is that I ended up graduating from high school. I go and study accounting and I become an, I'm starting to become an accountant and I take a music appreciation class in, in the first in the second year of uh, my associate's degree or whatever. And they played the Rite of Spring. And that was like a life changing moment. Like I heard it and I, I just 
I had a moment where I just couldn't even take it. Like I was trying to understand how a human being did that. And the coolest thing um, was Jay Brown was a, was a teacher and he was walking around with a score. And then he kept walking around to the students and saying, um, showing different moments. And there was this really cool moment in the Rite of Spring where, where the orchestra goes, wow. And he pointed at the notes that we're doing. And I, and I kept, what stuck in my head was, it's only like two instruments. There's like just a trombone doing that. And I, it, I wasn't thinking trombone. I, I studied the score later, but I was like, only an instrument's doing that. And that was like, a person did this. Like, this is something people do. You know, I, it, like the idea of it always felt far removed. Another case in point. When I was in Costa Rica, I saw a commercial for um, a Fender guitars. And I didn't know until then that you could buy one. I thought that musicians were born in an island far away. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like they were born like in a completely different place and like lived in a guild or something. And then that's not for us people. You know what I mean? And so when I saw the commercial, I was like, oh, you can buy one of those. Like, that's how I've come into this. And that led me to studying classical music. And so when I went to college, I sort of switched, you know, from from that to classical guitar and then composition. I go to USC and I start studying there. And um, basically, can you hear me, by the way, still? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Hold on. I'm just trying to get... Do you hear a voice in the background talking? Do you hear any voices in the background? If very, you're quiet for very like faint. a few Hold seconds, on one second. we hear a little warble. Sorry, let me. I'm, not, I'm killing the timing over the. Hopefully, you can edit this for a second. Sorry, guys. Let me just make sure. Can you hear me now? Yeah. 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 You sound yeah, yeah. yeah. I was just telling everybody that I was, I was doing an interview because they're like talking. I'm like, I want to hear what they're talking about. So, okay. Sorry about that, Kenny. And, and that, that, yeah. that's. That's. I just want to say that story about the the musicians living on an island. It reminds me of uh, when you see like your elementary school teacher at the grocery store, and you're like, "What are you doing here? You should be at yes, school where you that... live." <laughs> I always exactly. had that feeling. I'm like, "Wait, they they go out? They're doing stuff? I thought they just lived in the class." Yeah, but, yeah. You know what the weirdest thing? When I moved back to Miami, I actually came. I went to visit my high school. Like they took me on a tour of the high school I'd grown up in, and I walked in to the teachers' conference room. And they were all there. And these are the people that taught me like 15 years before. And they were all hanging out. I was like, what are they doing here? Like, it wasn't, <laughs> it was like, they talked to, they must, I always thought that my one teacher for science was just doing that job. And they never, I never knew, understood that part. And all of a sudden I saw them in the same room and I was like, this is too much. This is too, it's, it's, it's a weird <laughs> thing. But, you know, I mean, I guess the fast forward is like, I started studying and taking music very seriously. And I went to USC uh, to get my doctorate, my master's degree in composition, and eventually a, a doctorate degree in composition. And along the way, I got signed to a to a label, uh, Universal Records, um, and I was a guitar player in the band. And we had, you know, a song placed in a movie called Dragonfly. And then the label folded, and I ended up finishing my degree because. I had a very great teacher at USC called Don Crockett. I think he's still the chairperson there. And when things were coming up for me to get a record deal, I said, Dr. Crockett, I, I kind of don't know. I'm, I'm missing my master's recital, but I have this thing. What do I do? He goes, Carlos, you're young once. Go get the deal. Do this. And school isn't going anywhere. 
And it's the same thing I tell the students today. Like I tell them the same thing you told me. I went and followed that for three years. It was beautiful and then a disaster. And all of a sudden I was lost and we kept having breakfast. And Dr. Crockett told me, Carlos, have you thought of finishing your degree? I was like, nope. And he's, he said basically, uh, I think you should. You should consider finishing. You know, why not? I went and finished a degree. And then we had another breakfast. So he goes, Carlos, have you thought of getting your doctoral degree? And I said, nope. And he said, maybe you should do that, you know. And so he really was the reason I kind of came back fully to music, you know. And at the time, because of the band had folded and all these things had happened, I was like building websites, driving gear for other bands. It was just like a, it's a much longer story that, you know, gets a little boring, but it was really insane. I was doing all kinds of jobs and, and, and then he helped me kind of really rethink and just make money by doing music. So what I started doing was I, I learned how to teach Suzuki guitar. And I trained to teach kids, you know, to play classical guitar. And I started doing private lessons. And that's how I met Scott Frank, because he was one of my private students. And when I went to get the doctoral degree, um, there was a mentorship program at USC, and Randy Newman was on the board. And so I uh. signed up. And because I had been in a rock band, I guess had been signed or whatever, and I wanted to do classical, they paired him up with me. And so I wow. thought, well, I know, mind-blowing, man, because I had just <laughs> been like, freaking because like i had just been like for like the previous two years falling in love with randy newman's work and not the film music i mean just the songs you know it's one of the great records is nelson sings newman harry nelson singing his songs and it's like from 71 and or something like that and it's just it's a perfect record like the songs are perfect little masterpieces and i was at that time fanning out on that so then i got an email from him Carlos, I'm really pleased to have been paired with you. Give me a call. I'm trying to do his voice. I'm going to stop. It, it doesn't work. Um, so Carlos. He <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He goes, hey, hey. No, but he's just, he's, I can't even get into it. And So the point is that I, I went to his house thinking it would be like a 15-minute hang where he'd be like, Carlos, you're a good boy. You're a good half-Cuban kid. Yeah, keep it I'm going to go back. Yeah, doing good. I, I got to get back to work. And um, But it wasn't, man. It was just... It was really special. It was like a two-hour thing. I didn't expect it to be that long. And then I'm driving home going, oh, my God, I was just hanging out with Randy. Like, for real, like any fan would. And, and, then, um, and then he'd call me for, for, to go to sessions. So I would go and watch sessions. And that was one of the big moments. One of the great lessons from, from Randy Newman was the fact that during the sessions for The Princess and the Frog, it was, I was like the fly on the wall. I had been asked to move chairs, you know, because like move out of the way because of the Disney executives here or so. And I was standing on the corner just like freaking out. And um, the director was two directors on that show. And then uh, Randy had been there was a queue they were doing. And the director was like, we, we just there's something here we're not we're not liking. And I'm in the, in the background going, dude, that's Randy Newman. You can't tell him you don't like that. You know what I mean? Like, he's <laughs> awesome. Like that, and all of a sudden, Randy turns around and he goes, "Yeah, let me see what I can do." And I was like, "What? Oh!" And then this when I started to understand that Randy was working for them. You know what I mean? It's like I, you know, from the objective point of view, for most people, it's like there is a, there is no pecking order. It's just like the composer gets brought down from on high to grant his gift to the production. But the reality, <laughs> the reality is a totally different one, and. And that was one of the best insights I got is that we are a service industry and Randy uh, was serving the vision of the directors. And it helped me certainly 
um, as I started getting revisions and my opportunities that I got to to realize it's not about me. This is about them. And if they don't like it, I don't have there's no argument really that's worth having unless I really, really, really believe something is right about what I wrote. But it but the ego has to get thrown out because it's it's about them, whoever it is. Were you when you were going to college, though? What was the goal in terms of music? You were studying music, but what did you want to do? Classical. Was it, was it so? So Classical. you had switched, but like, were you? Did you want to write uh, shows? Did you want to just play? No, I didn't think I would ever do that. I mean, I I le- never thought like ever that. Like I said, talking to you is freaking me out a little bit because I never thought this was <laughs> part of the conversation. I thought I was aiming for composition, and I was when I moved to USC. I was. I wrote like this classical guitar piece called Whirler of the Dance, and it happened to win an, uh, uh, an ASCAP award for composition. And, and then it got performed, and then it got recorded on Naxos, which is a classical label. And that started a popularity thing for my career in composition that led me to write other pieces of music. I, I wrote a guitar quartet for this group called the Los Angeles Guitar Quartet. They released it on Sony Classical. And when I went to Sony Classical in New York and I walked into the label, I was like, oh my God, I'm at the label. You know what I mean? That My career was going a classical route. And then I wrote a, uh, an orchestral piece and it won some other award. And then I got performed, a, a, a one piece got performed in New York. And then I got I started getting commissions to write classical orchestral music going back to Stravinsky the thing that I wanted to do started to kind of happen and so by the time I'm already full on like by 2010 or so I am already getting commissions for I wrote a guitar I mean, a trumpet concerto for Arturo Sandoval who's like a trumpet player and I wrote a trumpet concerto and I collaborated with him so my career was well on its way to be classical and the goal was not to be dead you know, the whole point was like most composers who are classical composers get their music performed when they're dead. That was like, well, as long as I don't die, <laughs> I think we're good. And and that was where it was headed. But then it really just took a big shift because of Scott Frank, truly. Scott Frank was was the reason, you know, for everything. So now were you living in New York? You sent us a video and this is the first time you've mentioned New York. You sent us a yes. video. This is at the same time that uh, Score a Film Music Documentary was coming out. It was premiering in New York and in kind yes, of select yeah. cities at the time. But walk me yeah, through yeah. what was happening here. Well, okay. What happened is that I was, I was staying in a hotel near Washington Square. And then I started walking around. And then um, I found out through the map, you know, like where to go. So I was going to walk it. It was going to be like a 15, 20-minute walk or whatever to get to the quad cinema. And... All of a sudden, I start heading out thinking I had plenty of time. I timed it. It's like, if I leave now, I'll be there in 15, 20 minutes. It was a massive protest that had just happened. All the streets were blocked off. And so I had to ask a cop how to get there. And I happened to be filming it because I was, like, so happy to be a fan and getting to watch this movie about composers, which I was loving. And so right there, towards the end, I got there and it just took it took a long time to actually get to the movie. And I don't think I was late. I was just in time. But for me, it was like, um, I don't know why I filmed it. I never thought. Do you know what I mean? That, <laughs> that was, was my for question. Me. I was like, this is you saved that. That's cool. No, I, that, that's the thing. It wasn't like I was like, well, one day I was like I had I was in New York because we were doing um, long. We were recording with the orchestra, the Budapest Art Orchestra. And we were doing recording sessions for Godless. 
And so I was staying in New York, and I was working with a guy called Tom Kramer, who's been my music editor for the last uh, for the, everything I've done with Scott Frank. It was amazing. You can look him up on IMDb. It's like ridiculous what he's done. And um, I was just hanging out, and that night, because I was in the stuff doing Godless, I, it's just all part of this fan thing. So it was just me getting to go and do this. And I was just, and I also started filming like, oh, I'm going to go do this because I was in Washington Square and it was pretty. You know what I mean? Then I started filming it because it was weird and there were barricades and there was people and I had, <laughs> and I, and I had my phone and I started talking to the cop because I was like, how do I get there? And then I filmed it because I got there. There was no like, how do you think these things this far ahead ever, you know? But I had to send it to you because it was just so surreal that I was getting to talk to you guys about anything. And I said, you should know how, uh, that you had a fan before the interview, you know. That is very cool. Yeah, I'm glad you shared that. Um, I, one other thing I want to hit, and then I want to talk a little bit more about, obviously, Queen's Gambit, which has just totally blown up and is uh, such a great series. I mean, really, I was a little late to the game seeing it even. And Same. My totally, wife yeah. was like, you will love this. you got to watch this. And I'm like, oh, okay, you say that about every series. And I, sure enough. So, um, but I, I, your involvement, I think, with the University of Miami, this just came up when we were just kind of poking around a little bit, doing some mm -hmm. research for chatting with you. How did that come about? Uh, your, and I, forgive me, I think, yeah, is, yeah. are you the, mus the musical director? I'm the program director for the media scoring production uh, program there. And uh, how and, and when did that come about? I was at USC um, and I got my doctoral degree at, in, in music composition, like the classical stuff. And I remember asking Dr. Crockett again, hey, do you have any adjunct work at USC? And he goes, nope. <laughs> nice payback <laughs> for me saying nope those other times. And, and he's like, well, Carlos, you know, there is, however, Chris Sampson, who I knew, who I'd known from before, he goes, he's starting this popular music program at, at SC, and you may want to reach out to him. And sure enough, you know, there was an opportunity. I, I started there. I finished my TA-ship with him there. And I got, and I, and I taught for the first year of the popular music program as an adjunct. Then when we moved there was a reason to move to miami was because my wife had this great job opportunity and i was like oh my god what am i going to do so i reached out to um and they were indeed starting or had already started a popular music program as well so i was able to come in as an adjunct there so i was able to kind of vertically kind of move i also had this commission uh for to write a concerto for arturo sandoval that was going to be pre uh, premiered by the miami symphony orchestra so it, there was like a the serendipity kind of thing going on and i don't know about you guys but like my life has been a series of weird events that and i've always just sort of followed along as as these things come about and and that's how that happened but i'm not sure exactly what question you asked me right now i have no idea what i'm talking about this you 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 <laughs> talked about the series of events it's so funny because i think everyone has this thought in their mind that life is just a normal path that you're supposed to follow. But I don't think anyone has a normal progression of anything. There's always something random and it makes you wonder, what if I didn't go to that lunch that day? Or what if I didn't, what if I was sick the day the princess and the frog was scoring and I didn't have that moment of realization mm -hmm. with Randy Newman? Like, it's oh my God. You mentioned that moment with Randy Newman and someone saying, oh, I don't like that. And Randy saying, oh, let me see what I can do. That's kind of the way that, life works too and that you're like here's what i want to do and then life says no we're going to give you this instead and then and the you say okay well let's idea. see how this yeah. can how we can work together on this thing 
Yeah, it's 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 um it, it really makes it to me it, it it has made no sense, but the intent has been sort of answered. Like I wanted to be involved, but I never thought I'd get to do that, you know? And uh even to bring it back to the interview to to you guys again, um it's like a weird love fest, I know, but but like when when Robert Kraft talks about I got a cookie for you or the story he talks about the um, <laughs> you know that whole that I've heard so many of the interview interviews you guys have done and I think it's a it's a great thing you do and I like that it's out it's been a growth from the actual document. Like here's the thing, how did you guys even get into why what led you to make this the documentary in the first place? The thing I went The interview to just went, flipped. Yeah, this is the Carlos show now. I, I want to know, and I think the people <laughs> in the audience have a right to know. <laughs> well, well it, it, some people in the audience have probably heard bits and pieces of this, but basically, I, yeah. I was a journalist. Kenny it, was a journalist at the time, and is is still um, in his his day job. Um, right. But we started to basically assemble. I mean, I knew how to do on a micro scale, right? Because like. It was mostly TV news coverage that I was involved in. So, like, the skill set isn't too different from what you would do if you're making a documentary. It's still largely journalistic and whatever. I don't know anybody in the film music industry. Um, the closest thing I have is I have a friend whose dad was a TV composer back in the 80s and 90s. You know, like, yeah, that was as yeah, close yeah, yeah. As, as I got. But we started to say, is there a path to, you know, the... the uh, uh, the the big the big composers in the world because they're really interesting those are people who are basically rock stars and well what was it know. it was finding nemo or something that you were watching and you wanted there was a like a featurette on a blu-ray is that if if i remember correctly they were really impactful a few a few films that hans was doing at the time really made me say like this there needs to be a whole documentary about how this stuff comes together you know, because wow. this is a whole really interesting industry. And there wasn't. Surprising. And there wasn't for several years. And it was like, okay, well, then maybe this is what we ought to be doing. And uh, and so, yeah, I, I, I left my job and we started to, you know, network our way to, to uh, 50 interviews or whatever we ended up doing. But, um, but starting with ASCAP, with uh, Sean Lamone over there. Well, here's, here's a, to, sh to finish it off and flip it maybe, I guess, but it's just that... I was uh, yesterday the day before. There's a, a forum on Facebook called Perspective, and I flip in and and sometimes join and, and talk about things. And but somebody asked, "What's a great? You know, I've seen the score, score of the documentary. Uh, do you guys have any other recommendations?" And like five people or three or four people chime in, you know, saying, "Score the documentary." Like the same thing. Like they, because <laughs> it seems to be like, and that's why I think it kind of even underscores the. The reason why I went to a movie theater to see a movie about composers, you know, that, you know, that was because as big, you know, I'm as big a fan as any of any of these folks, you know, and the work they do. And and now that I'm on the other side of it, like I understand and really respect how I respect longevity. I respect uh, being able to stay in and, and do it because it's a very, very stressful gig. So, yeah. Do you consider yourself a, a professor? that scores films or like are you available for gigs if someone calls at any point or is it difficult for you to take a gig since you're doing this thing with university of miami i didn't know i've been right now i'm working on a few things and i was working all along on on those projects as i was running the programs at one point i was running two programs i was running the contemporary program and the film scoring program and um and and so 
I've kind of let go of one of them because the central nervous system was kind of falling apart, you know. But um, but it's been somehow manageable, and I've been very fortunate to have a better half who's been with me for almost like 30 years now and she i don't know why she hasn't left me like i, I don't get it <laughs> because but that balance at home is 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 really been the blessing you know it's not easy but i certainly am grateful that she's been there and supported me because it's a you know uh, you know you know it's ups and downs you know all the time you know and it's very it's very probably stressful. great for the university as well the program to say like now our guy scored the Queen's Gambit. Everyone's heard of that, and who wouldn't want to learn under you when you have a, a successful, uh, you know, project like that? Yeah, and I think I think I like the fact that you're calling it a successful project. I I, I do think, and 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 I mean it because I think that there is a perception that what we do is art or art, you know, and and I think that if we're lucky, there are moments that become art. But what we do is a craft, and it's a project. And you and you're and you're hired to no different than a production designer, than a costume designer, than a makeup person, than, you know, like all we're we're part of this massive whole, you know, and like maybe in the in the couch, if it's in the frame, that little circle, that's music. And then there's the rest of the frame, which is the production. And and I really try to dispel the concept of you're making art because once you kind of start, if you step into a project thinking well, now I'm going to have to, you know, make art because it's the right of spring, you know, Stravinsky's right of spring. It's never that. It, you're, you're setting yourself up for massive failure. I think like anyone who, who, you know, can learn how to write music, anyone can learn how to compose, and anyone can learn how to songwrite. Um, there are people who are much more adept at it uh, from the get-go. You know, just like when you learn how to ride bike. Maybe it took you three days. Maybe it took your cousin like three weeks. But by the end of the month, both of you guys are riding bike. You know, everyone has a driver's license. Not everybody should be driving, as you know. <laughs> and so uh, I think that what we do is a craft. And I, and I treat it that way. It helps psychologically a lot because you're not thinking of ego. You're thinking of the, the service industry that we are. And, and we have – and if the director doesn't like it, I just – I just got approved on something, a 27th version of a queue. Wow. Thanks, Which Dan. of those 27 versions did you like best? I got to tell you, the 27th is pretty good. <laughs> and, 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 and the thing is, like, I have had this experience with Scott, you know, because he's the only person I'd worked on with before these gigs that I'm doing right now. And, and, and there has never been a revision that has not improved the final outcome. I have not had the regretted my version one was right. I've never gone to bed thinking that. I've I've gone to bed pissed because I have to do version seven, you know, and thinking like I really wish and 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 I we could segue to the gambit as well because because I my first attempts at gameplay were all failures and they were all wrong and I thought they were right. I thought I was nailing it when I sent, I'd press return or send on the email with the link. Very happy. And then of course I get like a bat to the shin, you know, it's just, nope, it's oh. not right. And you got to deal. that's the job. So, yeah. So Matt mentioned this basically, but I think a, a lot of people had the same reaction to, I was going anywhere I went, whether it was to work, to talk to a friend, anyone, have you seen the queen's gambit? And it was like, 
I haven't. Yeah, I'll get to it. You know, you have these these shows being thrown at you, and you constantly say, yeah, uh, yeah I'll, I'll watch that. But right now we're watching this. And then, it, well, what's it about? It's about a girl that plays chess. And I was like, I don't think that's for me. Um, but, you know, well, let me let me finish the show I'm watching, and then maybe we'll get to it. Have you seen The Queen's Gambit? Have you seen The Queen's Gambit? It's about the girl that plays chess. And I was like, all right, finally, I'm just going to fire it up. And, wow. I mean, I'm curious, though, when you hear a pitch for a show about a girl that plays chess. I mean, it's hard enough. I think of, like, sports movies. There's so yeah. much to music and editing to make scenes in a sports movie work and it takes so much pre-planning because all of that stuff has to be shot and put together right for it to really i mean shoot a game of someone watching or playing chess it's going to be the most boring thing ever you really have to to produce that up when you first heard the idea were you excited were you like nervous um what were your thoughts about trying to to score a game of chess both both is the actual answer i got an email from scott like in april of 2018 saying the subject outline was the queen's gambit and it said uh it looks like this is what we're going to be working on next for netflix and so i forwarded the email to my wife immediately going woohoo or whatever like wow you know it looks like i got a, i'm working with scott again and then i downloaded the book uh by novel by walter tevis and oh, uh we lost him yeah yeah, and he's back. There he's he is. Back. And then um, I downloaded the novel by Walter Tevis and read it like within a day and freaked out at that point. That was the moment when I when I knew that um, that something was something was was going to be a pro it was going to be a problem because first of all the novel mentions classical music quite a bit as opposed mm. to um, do you want me to pause? Sorry, I'm, do you want me to stop and wait for Matt to come back? Um, I don't know what happened here. Let me see. Oh, there he goes. You good? Sorry, I, I don't know what just happened. I got I booted know. for a second. <laughs> I, I I stopped just in case, you know. Um, I'm, I'm going back and start. No, sorry for the, the interruption. Yeah, you got an email is the last thing. I, I got, got an email. Yeah, yeah. And so so what I did was I forwarded it to my wife immediately, and then I went and downloaded the novel, and I read it within a day by Walter Tevis. And I was freaked out because I realized they mentioned – he. Walter Tevis, when he talks about chess, he talks about it using classical music references, which is already scary. And then at some point he talks about it saying like um, it was like chamber music when he's describing one of the games. Mind you, the book's a great read. It's a short read. And um, and then um, he also mentions Vivaldi, like, like she plays Vivaldi. At one point, Beth uh, stays with some college kids overnight and they go take off and that day she drinks. But she plays Vivaldi in the novel while she's drinking, right? And then, of course, the show did it so appropriately. They did source music of the time, which makes sense, right? It helps us stay in the time. And But reading it, I started getting as worried as it sounds. You know, how do you make chess interesting? And I think that was, of course, Scott's main challenge. And it was such a different project for Scott to take on. But I knew it was a novel he learned. And I knew that he was going to get it right because he had Gary Kasparov and Bruce Pandolfini, you know, as advisors. And... The games that were played were famous games of chess. So I knew from the onset that if anything, the community, the chess community was going to be done right. You know, they're going to go do right by them. So if there was any success that the show was going to have, it was going to be based on the fact that the chess community would love it. And I was already excited about that. 
Um, but then came scoring. Uh, and I, so I wrote a lot of stuff early on from the novel and then into the first drafts of the screenplay. Um, I wrote the main title by December of that year, and he approved it. And the, so it was already a work in progress, but he wanted an all-piano score at the time, for example. And uh, that ended up being uh, something that evolved as we went into the episode two and episode three. There was no way it could just be piano because Beth was growing. Her world Why did he want it to be all piano? Because he's a director, man. <laughs> that was just his vision? That's, that's the only answer you need, that's I guess. That's the only answer. I, and that's the one I've learned. You know, I never question. I never question them. Like, they want kazoo. Sure. Let's, let's find kazoo <laughs> sh- stores nearby, you know, on Google search. And No, but, but no, I think he wanted very much. He had in mind sort of like a white and black, you know, a black and white squares, kind of the idea of white against black. And the piano was a image there's a lot of that sort of creative stuff that okay. happens at the beginning sure. and i think the idea of a very dry piano score uh was something that that was exciting uh for him and a challenge for me but it did yield some really cool stuff that that although the score is not that piano is still very present all the way throughout and also i kind of treated the piano as a choir i stopped thinking of the piano as you would usually regularly mic it you know like you have the stereo the low like i wanted it like a choir so the low notes would be on the right and then the high notes would be on the left and so i had different channels and this whole like sound world where it was a piano orchestra in my mind and i figured i'm going to try to treat it that way and that was a creative decision that was forced on because of the vision of the director you know and not and so um that that was where it started but as i started writing music to picture things changed because things were very positive writing to the screenplay and he even was listening to some of that music as he was shooting but when it came back to to assembling i started scoring and those it was not working and it was like i i sent my first one the first game that that uh beth plays with mr scheibel as a kid I had scored it a very specific way. I was doing every move and I thought of it as a ballet and I had Desplat, like, you know, like if you're familiar with birth, sure. the, the, the score for birth, which is my favorite of his, you know, the opening, mm-hmm. it had a little bit of that sound had this little innocent yet, you know, talking about it is weird, right? Cause it doesn't make any sense until you hear it. But I was super happy about that. And I sent it in and just not good. Then I was like, oh, my God, now now I'm in trouble. Now I don't know how to do this because there were 20-some games that I was going to have to score in the show, oh. it, which is like I, I go, if I'm having trouble with the first one, which I think is right, and that's the beauty of what we do, man. I mean, because I was forced to find a way, and I was positive I couldn't find it. So you grow, right? It's an education. And – I kept I kept trying different things. I kept trying different things until one moment I got a call from Scott saying, "Carlos, I think you're scoring the wrong movie." Uh-oh. And that was that was scary. I also got the the pity call from the sound designer Wiley, who's a brilliant guy. We call him Obi Wan Kenobi. Uh, he's like, "Carlos, if there's anything I can do to help, let me know." <laughs> the editor is calling Carlos. If there's anything, you know, I was like, "Oh no, this is not good. This yeah. is not good," you know. And, so and, let me ask you this: uh-huh. when when you get that message that says you're scoring the wrong movie, that that might be the worst thing you could hear because you're you need to basically start over. Yes, um, Let's take a step back. What do you do? What do you do as an artist personally? Um, everyone has their own ways of kind of refreshing, you know, 
clean, cleansing the palate, if you will, do you go for a walk? Like what's your strategy for kind of resetting? There's so many jokes I can't say on the interview. Uh, but uh, <laughs> when you're in that moment of reality, uh, it, it really is the moment where you make a decision of, I, I got to stick through it and I got to I gotta sit down, shut up and write. I got to write version three. I got to write version four. And I don't even know where I'm going. Knowing that you don't know is is like, it's completely good, but it's the worst feeling of all. It makes you think of like, well, maybe I should have been an accountant. Maybe I should have <laughs> gone down the path and just let that music appreciation class stay there. And uh, but but what happens when these when these moments uh, occur is 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 where you have to find your grit and and have to show something else. You know, Scott, uh, we had a we had a spotting uh, like a score review session and I had like four or five cues already I had presented. Most of them went badly. And then in one of them. Uh, in the middle of this like two minute cue I had, a little piano idea happened. And he's like, stop that. He said that. And I was like, yes, that, that. And I just grabbed what he said and took it and ran with it. And the next day he starts sending me texts like of all this different piano music that, that he's been like doing a playlist on Spotify. He's also trying to help me. Scott has been my champion man since day one. You know, he got me through a walk among the tombstones supported me when when we started with godless and and in this one no different so he helped me find my way and and that's why i'm always ultimately grateful i think if the score is good is because of the 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 many failures and iterations it took to get to a point where it felt right if that makes any sense did you feel it, there's a, a question from one of our, our Patreon backers, Cynthia Ann Hurt, who um, mm -hmm. was curious about di whether you researched the period in which this story happens to try to tap into something that was maybe, you know, in the zeitgeist or something, ch channel that uh, music in some way, and then whether any of that research that you did actually panned out, or if you ended up just needing to be like, this is the, this is the, 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 the film, this is the image, this is the story. We all base it off of what we see here. Well, you know, it's, it's, I think, I think I, no, I did a terrible amount of research. I listened to a lot of the kind of musical uh, things that were happening at the time. There was a conversation at some point of it being a more of a jazz score because of the time, because jazz, okay. the popularity of jazz music as popular music at the time. Yeah. Also blowing up. Yeah. And, and, but Scott hates jazz. So that, that, ended <laughs> that was a short conversation. And, yeah. Yeah. It was, and it's helpful for me because I'm not much of a jazz musician at all, you know, and I'm more classically and then classical and pop and jazz is a big dip in my uh, knowledge base, you know? And, um, and so, and so I think, I think the short of it is that I also did location-based music. I, when I read the novel that she goes to Mexico, I read the novel that she went to Paris, and I wrote music that was Parisian and Mexican or Latino-influenced, you know, and um, mm -hmm. that never worked. It, it felt like too on the nose, and, and, and I think what, what really helped me to answer your, your patrons, uh, followers' uh, question is, Cynthia Ann Hurd's question, is that um, it was about Beth... Beth's point of view, the entire story is only told to us from her point of view. If we think about it, it's only her experience, the whole show. We don't break off into Scheibel's life or we don't break off into anybody's life but Beth's. So 
what I started doing was scoring aspects of her character. Instead of a theme for her, I wrote a theme for uh, drug addiction, or a, a theme for she's up to something, you know. It's a little motif. That I did. Dun, 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 dun. And I did that every time, like when she's stealing the tools or when she does her final move against Borgoff, I brought it back. You know, like whenever she's doing something she shouldn't do or stealing the magazine, you'll hear that. Um, the idea of her winning victory music or different things for different parts of her life. That was the gig, you know, and, and di different parts of who she was. And that's what helped me, like growth music, you know, or even travel music, like arriving when she gets to her room. When she gets to New York, I think when she gets to Paris, they're all the same. So that's what helped the music help uh, 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 kind of get to where it needed to be as opposed to what time are, are we in? And once we had the palette sort of defined and Scott was like, this is cool, you know, it, it sort of really started falling into place as we went on. Not not many people get to be in the shoes of uh, the situation you were in, which is you had this show come out and it was the absolute hottest thing in the world yeah. for a period of, you know, a, a few weeks. Well, Netflix uh, comes least. out and says that it's like their top mini series of all time or something to that effect, which is amazing. Yeah. And be, and the other thing that's interesting too, and we've had this discussion a little bit, but with, with the birth of all of these streaming services and the not weekly release style, but giving you everything at once, that must be pretty crazy to, to release you we've worked so long on this project and then it comes out and it's all out there there's no weekly release so someone can watch it all in a day yeah what what is going on in your world when that show comes out and it gains all that momentum is your phone blowing up are you watching it along with it i mean that must be just a you crazy in moment disbelief in your life to some extent at how how amazingly this thing is tracking major uh, major disbelief at the beginning. There was a, a chess person called Adagmater. Agadmater. He's like a, he's got a lot of followers, and uh, he wrote he put a video where he studied one of the game. He analyzed one of the games uh, with Beth and Borgoff. I was like, what? Like, <laughs> it, it, like you know, it, it started. They start like the great people that are involved in that world started noticing and talking about the games because they were aware that they were recreations of other games. And I reached out, I was like, oh my God, this is so cool. And then we ended up playing a, ch a game of chess on Chess Online and he beat the crap out of me in two moves, of course. <laughs> and, and uh, but I, that kind of moment, I really thought, okay, I was like, this is cool because the chess community is really taking to it. That's awesome. But then it kept going and I started noticing on Spotify, there was like a lot of streams of the soundtrack, which I did not expect. and. I started going, oh my God, there's so, many, there's so many streams. It was like within the first few weeks or it was like 3 million streams. And now it's about, at Spotify at least, it's about 25 million or so. I never wow. had numbers like that. I never yeah, thought that, yeah, it's, it's, and I never thought that that would, you know what I, I like, I can't, I, I still even talking to you, I feel like I'm lying to you. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I, you know, I'm making that up. And then, <laughs> you know, I got, uh, you know what I mean? Seriously, I feel like I'm making this up, but it's it's weird that it's that it's happened. And and I'm happy for the main actor, Anya Taylor-Joy. She was, because uh, I was getting to watch the dailies. And that's one of the coolest things about being involved early on is you get to see the whole thing come together. And I was blown away with her then. And I remember calling the cinematographer, I think, or Steven Meisler, who, was, who did a great job, and saying, Dude, she's so professional. He's like, yeah, I know. 
you know? And that's all I could think of. And I kept thinking she's going to be the next Meryl Streep. She's going to be the next Meryl Streep. Again, within the context of thinking this show would be, like, this would be a stepping stone for her. And one day, she's going to become huge. That right. that was the perception of this, you know? And so it's 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 fascinating, man. It's, it's still my... Well, mind. and it also created this craze for kids wanting to learn chess and people wanting to play i mean my fiance and i started playing chess every <laughs> once a week after watching that i'm not kidding you we, we so cool. she didn't really know how to play yeah. i learned in elementary school and and yeah. I'm, I'm okay at playing but i taught her again to play and we we would play every week because of that show yeah i taught it's, my it's uh, so younger weird. sister because of really? that show yeah oh, isn't that weird that is the coolest man <laughs> Totally unrelated. We haven't talked about this at all ever before, no. Kenny. <laughs> but it's like it, it is mind blowing to me. I, I'm I'm very moved by all that. And for me, it was my dad who taught me. He passed away like uh, a couple years ago. So it was like a very kind of cool thing to kind of have something like that, you know, and that connection. And I was playing with my kid, um, you know, like, you know, like after shortly after the show had come out. And then at some point he got stuck and he did. And he looked up and I almost cried, you know, because he looked up at the ceiling like I was like, oh, my God, dude. So anyway, like, what are you so doing in the medicine cabinet? Get out of there. No, yeah, let's let's not go to the medicine cabinet. Let's not see that part. Let's just keep looking up. What's next oh, for you? Man. I'm working on a couple of things. Um, and, I, and, and I just uh, the reason I'm not saying it is not because I can't. It's just because I don't I, I, I'm very um, superstitious about sure. getting fired from a gig. And I lost I, I lost one gig like two years two years ago. I think while Queen's Gambit was starting, I did a pilot and I got replaced and that feeling was horrible, man. But I kept hearing it's like really good that you get fired from a gig because then you know you have the badge <laughs> of honor, you know, you've been fired. And but it was Isn't good. It, it's the Jerry Goldsmith quote. Uh, you Oh you really become you have you're not a successful composer until you've been fired or something like that. And it's <laughs> It's used all the time. I think Hans Zimmer said it to Junkie XL, Tom Holkenborg, after the Justice League thing happened. So, oh, wow. It's, wow, man. It's, it's, well, a, it's one of those things that's thrown around. So that, that's that's your badge of honor. That's you. That's one of the stripes, I guess, is to get canned. Yeah. I mean, honestly, man, the fact is also I'm, I'm grateful to get a call at all. You know, I've, I've only worked with Scott. And, and, and the experiences I've been having have been also educational. You're just constantly learning how, how it's most, it's such a psychological job. It's such a, it's about dealing with people and, and, and personalities and, and having to understand or try to interpret. That's the, the hardest part is really trying to interpret what they mean by, um, happier. Yeah. Simple words like that. What does that mean to them? Note wise, you know? or color wise or instrument wise. And, and, and there's so much growth in that. And, and, and I love that. I love what we, I spent a lot of time talking to my students about that too. Uh, uh, all the mistakes I've made, I go to town on and just share it with them brutally and, and understand that music is just your ability to write, whether you're technically a better craftsman or not, it's kind of just part or craftsperson, it's it's just part of the equation. There's all this other aspects of: Do you get along? Do, you know, can you take a note well? Can you can you do a revision twenty seven? You know, and and show up for it. You know, and that that sort of thing is something that that you just have to develop. And and I think and that's why I respect the folks that have, you know, the longevity. You know, uh, your interview with Howard Shore was great. I mean, Jesus, what a 
what a story, you know, and what a, what a character and what, right? And and the kind and the level of people he's worked with throughout all these years, and that the ultimate respect is that you know now he's kind of the old guard, you can say, you know, he's definitely part of that. Yeah. And but and, a, he a similar path to you. He was in a band and yeah, did true. his touring and did his record deal, and then somehow you know bumps into someone and wants him to score something and he had no plans to do that so again as much as you feel like you're an outlier or something because you of your weird path like it's every single person we talk to has that same someone gave him a call and they're like i don't know how to do that That's i guess sure. i can give it a try and then next thing you know he's lord of the rings I and know. it's I love that soundtrack what? so much. I love that soundtrack so much, man. That's like define my life. We quote Frodo and Sam all the time at home, you know. And uh, but yeah, no, it's it's certainly one of the one of the great joys. And I and I'm enjoying the ride. I know what it is, and I know that the attention is now, and I know that there's like a, a drop off. And that's a, I think the better part about having this happen now that I'm older is that I know I I don't have many expectations other than I'm lucky to get called, and I'm grateful to keep working. That's that's all it is, you know, and uh, and I get to share well, it with one the of students. the things I love about the Queen's Gambit score is that it it's so uh, playable on its own, too. It's really good music to Thank just you. put on at the house because there are certain scores where you put it on and it's like, well, I don't want to fight a battle while I'm cooking dinner. <laughs> you feel like you're going to, you know, carve the meat violently yeah. or something. But this music is it's really nice to listen to on its yeah. own standalone. But what an incredible score uh, married to the picture. If you're one of the five left people left on Earth that hasn't seen Queen's Gambit, go watch it. Um, <laughs> Carlos, thank you for coming on and, and chatting with us and uh, for sharing that cool video of you checking out score in New York. That means a lot to us. That was we really, awesome. really yeah. cool. For the five people who haven't uh, seen the score documentary, you should, you should totally do that, too. <laughs> I wish that was the case. We're, we're hoping to get those Queen's Gambit numbers here at some point. Yeah. Hey, maybe it'll end up on Netflix one day and we can have uh, oh my God, Dude, how awesome would that be? That's so cool. That would be awesome because I get to see it all the time. Good well, I bought it. it. I, I'm one of the people who own it on like my Apple subscription, so I have the movie. I can always watch it, but... Thank you, guys. Awesome, Thank man. you so well, much. Well, thank you. Con continued success on your future secret projects. We can't see what uh, – wait to see secret, what you have dude. It's just – I just – It's private. You know. It needs to it, – Hans, Hans said this in our interview. He said um, there's a difference between something being secret and something being private because you need to – you need the privacy to be able to find the identity of something, to explore a little bit and not be – putting everything out in front of people. And then if something doesn't work, you know, it devastates you. And he said, it's gotta, it's gotta start private. And, uh, yeah. and then at some point you can break, once you know, you have something, you kind of, uh, get your, get it under your fingers. I think he says, or, or maybe John Powell says that, but, um, well, yeah. And if you happen to lose it, there's less people that know that you had it in the first <laughs> right. place. That, that's so you don't the, have to de deliver that news. That No, that is the truth. I think I do. I like it. As a matter of fact, the way I see it when you know you have it is when the credits, when you get to the credits. And I, that's the joke I make. You got to write your way to the credits. And once I'm there, if, if I was there in these any of these projects right now, I'd be like, dude, so then I'm going to, you know, whatever. And, but I, I'm not talking like that because that's not happening right now. <laughs> I'm just working and, <laughs> and and hoping to keep it going, you know. But you know, well, you I'm have grateful, big man. fans in us, and uh, thank, thank you so you, much man. for uh, for sharing a little bit of this stuff with us. Um, we well, we likewise, wish you all the best. And 
We'll continue to follow every Nick. And when you do have something, hit us up again. Yeah. We'll want to chat for sure. I promise. I will do that, man. Thank you guys. Thank you so much for your time. This has been really cool.